The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Gary Wenk. He is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and molecular virology, immunology, and medical genetics at the Ohio State University and Medical Center. He is most recently the author of a brand new book called Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings. Welcome, Dr. Wenk. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be on your program, Melinda. Well, there are so many topics in this book that fascinate me and I know will fascinate our listeners. So the first question I want to ask you is, how does what we eat affect how we feel? Oh, my goodness. Um, that's as big a question as the range of our dietary you know, intake. You know, the way I really decided to answer that in the book was to sort of tap into the questions that I get from students. So a lot of the things that I focused on uh, end up being things that uh, people between, you know, like 18 and 30 would consume. And clearly, when I, when I point them out to the students, uh, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that really does affect me. And I try to highlight the simple things. One of the most powerful drugs that I highlight in the book uh, is sugar. And I essentially explain to them that it's a drug that you can become addicted to, and many people do. Sugar, of course, is the simple version of the chemical once we eat some complex carbohydrate. So uh, we get sugar from many sources. And, uh, you know, our brains are actually designed in terms of their evolutionary design to make us feel good, to reward us when we find sugar. And, uh, in fact, it goes beyond that. Fat, salt, and sugar are the three things that our brain loves us to consume. And it rewards us with a jolt of a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And I'll be coming back to that later, I'm sure. But essentially, it's a lot like taking a jolt of cocaine. It makes you feel wonderful to eat fat, salt, and sugar. And, you know, if you, if you want to get a sense of what it's, what it's like to feel what a, you know, addiction withdrawal, just stop eating any of those three things and you'll quickly realize that you're very much addicted to them. But being addicted to fat, salt, and sugar isn't bad. It simply is an issue of degree. So you can take in too much or you can take in just the right amount. So back to sugar. You know, every morning we wake up and our brain tells us, look, you've been fasting for the past 10, 12 hours. You haven't eaten. It's what I, as your brain, really want you to do is to go find some simple sugar, sugar-coated cereals, donuts, anything, bagels, just get me some sugar. That's your brain's instruction to you because it turns out that our brain evolved to use sugar as its primary source of energy. Now, that isn't the same for the rest of the body, but it's your brain doing the, you know, making the controls and telling you what to do in the morning, which is probably why we find so many donut stores scattered around America and people visiting them in the morning. So, you know, sugar is a nice example. The other, I think, best example of a food that uh, we all become addicted to or can, I know I certainly am guilty, is chocolate. Chocolate is one of those foods that is truly on the border between what we think of as a drug and what we think of as a nutrient. And so it's, it's easy to see that we, you know, give, derive a lot of pleasure from consuming chocolate. But what isn't so obvious sometimes is that chocolate contains chemicals that are actually quite psychoactive. They can get into the brain and in high enough doses you can get some major psychological responses. Let me give you one example. Uh, after the book came out, a woman contacted me, and she said that every time she ate chocolate, she became extremely angry. It turns out that that response is, is not common, but it does show up in the population, and a few people out of, you know, every few thousand are going to experience an anger response to eating chocolate. And it's just an indication that for some vulnerable people, there are enough active ingredients in chocolate to affect how you, your mood uh, is and how you feel. In this woman's case, she was almost fired because she became so aggressive and angry. So um, the point I want to make is that things that appear to be nutritious can sometimes be quite effective as psychoactive drugs. 
and we sometimes don't know how we're going to respond to them. It depends on a number of factors, and one of the most important is going to be, you know, your inherited genetic makeup. So if your, you know, mom and dad or grandparents had a particular food addiction uh, or, you know, sensitivity, then so will you. So when we start looking at foods and the brain, the behavior of foods and how we respond to them is very much parallel to how we uh, respond to, you know, marijuana and nicotine and, you know, cocaine. Our brain is simply wired to make us feel certain ways when these chemicals are present in us. And so getting back to the original question, or how does what we eat affect how we feel Each of the substances that you mentioned, glucose, fat, salt, sugar, and chocolate, Mm -hmm. nicotine, alcohol, coffee, they all behave, though, a little bit differently, right, in terms of which neurons or which brain cells, which, which chemicals within our body and brains, how they behave. So are there different categories, then? Can we group certain foods together? I'm thinking, for example, I tend to keep glucose or sugar and chocolate in two separate categories because, you know, we need glucose to run. I mean, we can't, we can't live without it. Correct. So the drive to consume carbohydrate, you can understand the physiological need. Chocolate, on the other hand, is a totally different issue. You know, chocolate, we don't necessarily need it to survive, but Many people, your your one exception here is the outlier, but many people want chocolate because it just plain makes them feel good aside from this supporting life position. It's a very good point, actually, and it ends up forcing us to make some you know, careful decisions about how we do examine these compounds. But let's focus on chocolate for a moment uh, and one case related to that, or one situation, I should say, and that's in postmenopausal women. They, as a group, tend to develop uh, chocoholism at a higher rate than women prior to menopause or men. And it's an inherited phenomenon and fairly common. Uh, we used to think that it had more to do with the sugar or the woman's moods and so forth. But now we realize that cocoa powder contains uh, two interesting things. One is magnesium salts and the other is uh, some uh, alkaloids that mimic estrogen. And so it turns out what women's bodies are craving are actually these two compounds that for some reason, uh, one obvious and one not so much, uh, their bodies need. And they discover that cocoa powder in, in the form of chocolate is a source. And so your body rewards you and says, go find more of that. So if, if you want to make the definition of something that's critical, like sugar, uh, that parallel, you might say that for a woman after menopause, chocolate is a source of a critical, you know, vitamin, you might say, necessary component of, that her body demands. That's uh, so interesting because, of course, there are other sources of magnesium. Yes. And if people are not making night runs to get nuts, <laughs> right? They're making They're night not. runs specifically for anything containing chocolate. It's true. Uh, and, and so I often tell uh, when I speak to groups of people, you know, the elderly and the women always bring this up. I tell them if they want to just go to a health food store and buy some, you know, some nuts or some magnesium salts, they can just skip the whole chocolate eating. But, you know, none of them are interested in doing that. They say they just enjoy the, the creamy smoothness, you know. Exactly. Um, and for men, there's now a number of epidemiological studies that for men, men who eat chocolate, and the darker the better, live longer, all things being equal, than men who do not eat chocolate. And it may have something to do with those estrogenic alkaloids. Uh, and there's a lot of what we call flavonoids in chocolate. These are mm-hmm. antioxidants, uh, anti-inflammatories that uh, may contribute to long-term health. But, uh, you know, all things being equal, though. So if you take, you know, two identical men, the guy who eats a lot of dark chocolates simply lives longer. Okay, I see this as a take-home message from this, <laughs> from this interview. Absolutely. <laughs> Let me ask, I want to get back to the glucose issue because I'm really fascinated by this. And it kind of lends to something else you talked about in your book about the plasticity of the brain mm-hmm. and how if we're eating a lot of something, our brains will get maybe used to it or want it more. And so I wouldn't consider myself to be a, quote, carbohydrate addict. But I know people who say they are, 
And I'm trying to figure out where that sense of addiction comes from. And even how are we defining an, an addict? Is it, do we absolutely have withdrawal symptoms from carbohydrates? Is it that we're just used to eating so many of them that if we cut back, we feel this need? Where is this coming from? Well, it, it, the basis of it is essentially in the wiring of the brain, which has uh, two underlying factors. The first is always the genetic makeup. A lot of these behaviors do tend to be inherited, and people mention that their parents might have demonstrated the same kind of addiction to sweets. You know, mom had a sweet tooth and so do I, that kind of thing. But it's more than that. You have to look at the fact that what do we have a brain for? It's a very plastic organ. It, it adjusts. It compensates. It helps us modify our behavior so we, you know, improve the likelihood that we're going to live longer, pass on offspring, you know, that kind of thing. So the brain is critical for helping us move around, find food, find energy, and and procreation. Those one of the things I highlighted in the book. But it doesn't just end there. It also is plastic in that it allows us to learn new things. And that may be one of the most critical things in us that sets us apart as, you know, as, as humans and learning organisms is that we modify our behavior according to the chemistry that our brain experiences. So if I keep, you know, in drinking beer, after a while, the absence of alcohol in my brain makes my brain crave it. Why? Because the circuitry of my brain changed and it now assumed that the presence of alcohol is normal. The same thing could be said for cocaine. We can see now that the same circuits, the same chemical processes that underlie learning and memory are, are the same ones that are involved in having you learn to be addicted to cocaine. And the same thing is true for sugar. We do need it as, uh, you know, as an energy source, but if you bathe your brain in lots of sugar, transmitters, again back to dopamine, are released, and that's a very rewarding feeling. So sugar, in some ways, can mimic at high doses the same you know, effect on a dopamine function in our brain that cocaine might or that nicotine might. So it turns out that we really become addicted to foods and drugs using the same neural mechanisms, the same circuits. And I think only in the past, I would say, five to ten years has that become clear that we're not that complicated. Uh, when we adjust, to the presence of something, a chemical in our body, be it from food or drug, our body adjusts and the absence of that chemical or, you know, from the food or drug makes us crave it. And the more you keep, you know, giving your body and brain that chemical, the more it's going to demand it. It's just simply the way our brain works. The whole idea is that if our brain likes it, and fat, salt, and sugar are things that are going to really improve your chances of survival because they're going to give you calories and reward you for finding those calories. Uh, and salt, which was something that you know, was hard to come by in nature generally, our brain has evolved to reward us for in, you know, taking those things into us. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, we are having a fascinating conversation about our brain on food. That's the title of Dr. Gary Wank's new book, how Chemicals Control Our Thoughts and Feelings. Dr. Wank is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and molecular virology, immunology, and medical genetics at The Ohio State University and Medical Center. Dr. Wank, I have to ask you a question. There are times when I find it difficult to focus on what I need to be focusing on. I need to get some work done. I need to get an article written. And I just can't maintain my focus. Coffee, or caffeine, or theobromine in tea, has always been my crutch. Can you tell me, I, I imagine that most of society also relies on those compounds, but can you tell me how that works? Yes, actually, we now know that coffee is most effective when you are exactly in the state you described, when you're most fatigued. It begins with a small molecule that is involved in actually making DNA. It's called adenosine. And adenosine is a chemical that our brain uses and, uh, you know, is an energy molecule, essentially. As the longer we're awake, the more of uh, this adenosine is produced as a byproduct. It's released in the brain. You might actually view it as debris, just sort of uh, the debris of brain activity, and it builds up. And what happens is that chemical begins to turn off the part of the brain that you need to pay attention to things, to focus, and to learn. Uh, the transmitter system is called acetylcholine. 
without acetylcholine functioning normally, it's exactly as you describe. Uh, we have difficulty paying attention and our memory is impaired. And as an aside, the major transmitter that degenerates in the brain in people who have Alzheimer's disease is the acetylcholine neuron. Mm-hmm. And Alzheimer's patients have a real big problem absorbing glucose into their brain. So you can imagine that they have sort of a double whammy effect there for the two things we've talked about. So back to caffeine. Adenosine slowly turns off your acetylcholine neurons, making you, you know, not quite as extreme as Alzheimer's disease, but in that general direction. And caffeine or theobromine uh, or theophylline are all able to antagonize what adenosine is doing. So they block the inhibition. Your acetylcholine neurons are released and they become active and you become attentive and your memory improves for as long as the caffeine is in you. So caffeine, it turns out, has a, has a very powerful sort of energizing effect also from the periphery. It tends to release adrenaline from your adrenal glands and it seems to have a lot of effects. One of the most interesting things that's become obvious in the past couple of years is that drinking coffee is good for your brain in many more ways than just helping you pay attention. We now know that people who drink five cups or more a day of coffee uh, every day for two or three years have a 85% reduction in their incidence of Parkinson's disease. We used to think that was just some oddity, that they were doing other things, but now we realize and we see the effect mostly in men. It's back to that whole estrogen thing. But men really benefit from drinking a lot of coffee in terms of their risks of getting neurodegenerative diseases. So coffee turns out to be very uh, protective, very cognitive enhancing. So which is it? Is it a nutrient? It comes from a plant that we simply boil in some water, yet it behaves in so many ways like drugs that people take to help them stay awake, to, you know, to enhance their mood. And now it actually might slow down the aging process. So coffee is another nice example of one of these foods that sits right on the border, which is why I think it's becoming so hard today to distinguish what's a food and what's a drug yeah. uh, because we've just gotten used to in taking things like nicotine and caffeine and, you know, chocolate uh, and a lot of other things, spices and various co- uh, components of our diet that affect how we feel. Well, you're just full of good news today. <laughs> this, our, our listeners will be so glad to hear this. Now, does theobromine in tea have the same health benefits as the caffeine in coffee? The, actually, it's theophylline in tea. Most of the xanthine in tea turns out to actually be caffeine. There is theophylline, but uh, if you look at most of the what we call xanthine, which is the caffeine-like compound, tea, uh, we believe, is mostly uh, more caffeine than theophylline. But they, both theophylline and caffeine are equally able to get into the brain and also uh, equally able to you know, stimulate adrenaline release and, and raise your heart rate. The theobromine, the the xanthine in chocolate, is not as potent. Even if you ate the same, you know, number of milligrams of drug, uh, it's nowhere near as potent. It doesn't have the cardiovascular effects, and it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier as easily. So in terms of its stimulant effects, chocolate is probably stimulating because of the sugar Mm -hmm. um, more than because of the caffeine-like compounds that are in it. So to stay awake and alert and to mm-hmm. be, I would say, let's just call this under one umbrella term, peak okay. performance. I'm focused, I'm attentive, my memory is sharp. Are there certain foods that can pretty much get us there? Wow, really good question. That comes up a lot, as you might guess. Given the many thousands of years that uh, humans have been out there sampling plants, you'd think we'd have stumbled onto everything possible. And to the best of my knowledge, we have. Drug companies are trying to take advantage of what we know about what nicotine does to stimulate our attention, what caffeine does to enhance arousal, and how drugs like amphetamine and cocaine work to make us more attentive. You know, Thus far, there's been no success. There are many, many examples of foods and drugs, chemicals that are able to impair our attentive ability, our cognitive ability, but there are very few that can uh, actually make us smarter. And they don't even really make us smarter. I think the way you described it is most accurate. They tend to simply stimulate us. So Mm -hmm. anything that is going to arouse us is going to make us feel a little more, you know, intelligent, a little smarter. The interesting thing is that drugs like caffeine and nicotine that make us attentive and wide awake and aroused 
tends to increase our finger tapping speed. And we yeah. know that finger tapping speed is correlated with IQ. So your listeners might try seeing how fast they can tap their index finger. The faster you can go, the probably the higher your IQ is. Is there a number of taps that we should be striving for? Well, I, I, <laughs> let's not actually say that. <laughs> a lot of families getting into arguments over the Christmas dinner. Right. Uh, <laughs> But whoever taps the fastest is probably going to have the, the fastest thinking brain. What it ends up looking like is sort of like the old megahertz computers versus our gigahertz computers today. You know, they work faster, but are they really smarter? No, they're just moving faster. Mm-hmm. And that's what people attempt to do with uh, coffee and cigarettes. They try and speed up brain function. And then that's what the reverse, of course, is what many people try and do at the end of the day to calm down. They use drugs that slow the nervous activity, such as alcohol and things related to it. So there are many, many ways. I think people, without thinking, oftentimes seek out certain chemicals from their cupboards to turn on or turn off their brain, depending upon what they feel like they need. We should talk a little bit about the aging brain. Okay. Because there are many baby boomers who are now looking to save their brains. They want to retain what they had. Are there any foods of benefit in this area? Well, the yes, there are. In fact, uh, there are foods that are as detrimental, and I can easily sum them up. Uh, but, but first, before I say that, I should point out that the, uh, I'm an Alzheimer's researcher, and uh, you know my research is on animals. And essentially what we've found is that Alzheimer's disease is probably something that starts in your teens and 20s because now we can see individuals demonstrating that how they live their lives affects whether or not individuals get Alzheimer's disease. So with that in mind, it points a big arrow that says, hey, it's something you're doing every day that makes it more or less likely that you're going to develop Alzheimer's disease. So the things that people do that most often get them in trouble and put them at risk is anything they do to uh, enhance diabetes, to induce a metabolic syndrome, so having lots of body fat, which would, of course, predispose one to diabetes. And the simplest thing that I've seen is the epidemiological evidence is that anything you eat from a cow is going to put you at risk of Alzheimer's. It really comes down to being, you know, sort of the, the advice you hear from so many government sources today. But what about the other side? Uh, can the I just interject one question there about right? the cow? Because I, I have yep. to ask. Yes. Uh, I would think, though, that cattle that are raised on grass mm-hmm. versus cattle that are fed corn are really two different animals, at least with regard to their fatty acid composition. Ah, they're a very good point. The epidemiology has never made the distinction because uh, no one, when, when we you know, interview individuals mm-hmm. and ask them what their diet is, there's no way uh, for that information to be to come across. Right, exactly. So, I think it's an important piece to ask because, the, at least from a nutritional standpoint, mm-hmm. there, there really does seem to be a difference. And I have heard people say, you know, avoid red meat. And I always want to say, but wait a second, there's red meat and there's red meat. <laughs> That's quite true. What we don't know yet is uh, what component. Uh, is it just the red meat? Because... When we look at things, you know, on the rest of the things on the list, it ends up being also things like potatoes or french fries around there. Uh, so you never know what the sources are. So right. it ends up being a global statement of, well, just avoid these things in general because we can't split those hairs yet for you. And quite frankly, we don't know. Mm-hmm. The thing, once again, uh, even to, to answer the other part of the question of what protects you, we have to really go to the epidemiology. It's sort of like the coffee and Parkinson's statement. So there is some uh, bits of evidence that suggest that drinking a lot of coffee might benefit people in terms of reducing the age of onset or, you know, moving it back in terms of getting Alzheimer's disease. There's also considerable evidence for some other things. For foods, the best evidence is for curcumin, which is a spice that shows up in curry. For many, many years, we've, you know, recognized that people who live in India simply don't seem to get Alzheimer's as often as the rest of the world. We thought that was a reporting problem. They just weren't keeping good records. But now that, you know, we've been paying attention for decades, it appears that vices in the curry, which they seem to eat, you know, virtually every day or every other day, are quite uh, neuroprotective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has led the NIH to actually do some trials with that spice, which is something, of course, you can go to the grocery store and pick up yourself. The other thing uh, would be alcohol. We see that people who drink beer seem to have a reduced incidence of getting Alzheimer's. 
which is interesting because you hear a lot about red wine, but that's red wine seems to be good for your cardiovascular system. Beer is something that people usually drink in greater volume, so the correlation ends up being better. So uh, the other thing would be smoking. It turns out that if you smoke late in life, it puts you at risk of Alzheimer's. But if you smoke in your 30s and 40s for a short period of time, it actually offers some protection because it turns out that nicotine is a powerful neuroprotectant. So now what you're getting is sort of this indication that all a bunch of immoral things or things that people do seem to be protective. Now, it may be that eating broccoli is good for the brain, but when you interview individuals and you say, look, you're 80 years old, sir, and you did not get Alzheimer's, what did you do? Well, they tend to remember the drinking of the beer and smoking cigarettes and so forth. <laughs> and now, coming to my research, the same kind of epidemiology led me to look at marijuana. It turns out that people in the 1960s who were smoking dope, you know, on the... Dr. Wank, uh, un- unfortunately, oh. we're going to have to end with okay. that amazing teaser on marijuana <laughs> because our 27 minutes have elapsed. But right. I, I think that your area of study is so fascinating, okay. and I know our listeners will want to learn more. Okay. And I highly recommend your book, Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings. I want to thank Dr. Gary Wank from the Ohio State University and Medical Center for joining us today and talking about how what we consume affects how we feel and how we behave. And there's many more topics in this book of great interest. We didn't even get to the placebo effect, which is one of my favorite topics. But uh, we'll have to have you back on because you have such great knowledge. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Wank, thank you so much. Thank you, Melinda. Hi, and welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm really delighted to have with us a farmer, a full-fledged farmer who has been working as the policy coordinator for the Northeast Organic Farming Association and has been very active in crafting our brand spanking new food safety law. And I wanted to talk to him about that. Steve Gilman, welcome. Thank you. Steve, you are in Saratoga, New York. You've been active with the Northeast Organic Farming Association, but you have been working on national policy, specifically with regard to our brand-new Food Safety Modernization Act. You were in on the formulation of it, the rules and regulations. You are one of the most intelligent people I've spoken to in terms of making it all make sense to the average consumer. So tell me a little something about how you got started with this topic. Sure. I worked for 30 years in the field as an organic farmer, um, certified vegetables for farmers markets, CSAs, restaurants, all in my within a 10-mile local radius. And I had an opportunity to work on an organic research project that kind of led me more further afield. And then an, an opportunity opened up with the Northeast Organic Farming Association known as NOFA, for a policy coordinator position. And NOFA is made up of seven northeast states that have independent state NOFA organizations. So that's in New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey. I think I hit all seven. So we work together as an interstate council on uh, regional, national, and international issues. And then each individual state NOFA handles things within their own states. And back in 2007 at a annual retreat, the whole issue of leafy greens came across our radar. I remember that. And at that point, uh, in 2006, I, I think people might recall that there was a huge spinach recall because of contaminated spinach that ended up, they finally traced it mostly all the way back, although they still don't know uh, all the details, but it appears it came from one field that got commingled with baby spinach from a whole lot of other fields in California, and it was processed in one shift at one processing plant, distributed to 27 different states, 
it sickened thousands of people and actually killed six, I believe. And this was contaminated with E. coli H70157, the, the deadly variant. And so up until then, really what was on everybody's radar was the dangers of commingled meat, as in hamburger, and various outbreaks that have happened in the meat industry. And so this was the first major one in produce. And there were all sorts of shrill reactions. And we at NOFA recognized that this was really going to feed into kind of a a real demand for some kind of legislative remedy for microbial contamination, as if that could happen. (laughs) We all know that when something hits the fan, Congress usually hears about it, and one of their first responses is to try and craft some legislation to make it go away. And so we realized early on that farmers are really vulnerable to legislative attempts, especially one-size-fits-all. And so we went to work early on in 2007 to start crafting a response to what was coming down the line. And as things got clearer and clearer, then all of a sudden things got crazier and crazier. In early 2009, there was the so-called Deloro Bill, put forth by Rosa DeLauro in Connecticut, 875, the House bill, that somehow hit the airwaves and the Internet saying that this is going to be the end of small farms and gardens as we know it, that FDA was going to come in and control everything from top to bottom, and this was like a viral Internet attack. Right. I think there's a lot of farmers and such who maybe newer to the Internet or feel very vulnerable as to kind of government legislation. And so this really took off. And it turns out it did a lot of damage to the credibility of small-scale, organic, and conventional, sustainable ag farmers because it wasn't grounded in truth. It turned out that Rosa DeLauro, really, her main point was to try and create a separate food administration and get the drugs out of there, because Big Pharma was dominating all that. And so the outcome was that her bill only had a couple of little pieces that folded into a larger House bill called H.R. 2749. And at that point, We were organizing ourselves, but we still didn't have any political clout. And so it got really pushed quickly through the House in the summer of 2009 under uh, Representative Henry Waxman from California and the Commerce Committee. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves facing a whole set of proposed legislation, including annual fees on mom-and-pop jam and jelly makers, that were the same as the fee charged to the largest Cargills and craft food companies. And behind all this, some of the large consumer groups were really trying to finally put something in place after I think the last food safety legislation on the books was from the 1930s, and they had been stonewalled through various administrations and now had a shot at getting some new legislation in place. So the problem with that was that we really didn't have the forces on the ground to really make a difference in the House bill. But we managed to fire a few shots across their bow, and we also got to a better organized position, um, thanks very much to the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition who has staffed people on the ground in Washington, D.C. And when the Senate bill, S-510, came along, we actually were in a position to start suggesting and nailing down some protections for farmers. And this was held in the so-called HELP Committee. It stands for Health, Education, and Pensions Committee, 
Senator Kennedy was the head of that. He died, and Senator Harkin, who was a longtime friend in the Ag Committee before that, came in as chair, and so there were some working relationships already established. And, you know, I'm out here in New York State. I've kind of a I was a political science major in college. I always kind of wondered when I was farming why I was a poli-sci major. And I've certainly been getting a full education on how the system really works. But I have to say, with our experience in crafting some protections for farmers in S-510, that there really was a process of grassroots democracy at work. And I know... There's a lot of people who feel frustrated because their message did not get reflected in that bill, but I think the details of it offer very deep protections for farmers that weren't there before. Steve, I have to ask a question at this point. I want to go back to the spinach recall, if I might, just for a moment. Sure. It'll all tie together, I promise. But I remember the spinach recall very clearly, and I wonder was it ever determined what the cause or what the source of the E. coli contamination was? E. coli, for our listeners, is a fecal contaminant. So whenever you hear E. coli or even salmonella, what that should bring to mind is there has been a fecal contamination of the product. Did we ever know where the source was on the spinach? I think the investigation did not nail down the smoking gun with that. The closest things they could come up with was that there is a cattle ranch next door to the facility, to the fields where they were producing the spinach, and there could have easily been an encroachment of contaminated E. coli from the cattle. They're prime carriers of that virulent strain that either blew in on dust or washed in on the rain um, into the spinach field. They at one point, we're trying to implicate some wild pigs, wild boars that might have gotten through a fence. And then further on, in California, their answer to that whole thing was to establish a leafy greens marketing agreement that set these huge super metrics for farmers targeting anything where, where the contamination could have come from. So part of their metrics were to drain all ponds near fields, kill frogs, put out poison to kill mice, and create 30-foot-wide bulldozed buffers between produce fields and other areas, put up huge fences, um, all of these without any scientific validation, and all the bottom line for farmers is that it was all very expensive. And so, in effect, if you were a middle or bigger-sized farmer who wanted to deal with the big supermarket industrial food industry, then you had to pay to play to be able to be a supplier. And that's what, one of the things we were worried about was that those metrics that came out of California, and there's an attempt to make them nationwide now with a national leafy greens marketing agreement, those metrics would be um, enforced on farmers of all sizes and end up putting a lot of farmers out of business. So that was more impetus to really work uh, legislatively to correct all these things. The other major thing that we soon discovered was back in 2002, as a response to the World Trade Center bombings in 2001 and was it was called the Bioterrorism Act of 2002 and written into that rule was a definition that included farmers as facilities and under FDA the Food and Drug Administration's oversight capacities they don't really have the ability to oversee farms unless they can classify them as facilities. And so by rulemaking and the powers given to them under the Bioterrorism Act of 2002, simple harvesting operations on a farm like cutting, washing, trimming, things like that that a farmer does automatically in the field for 
cutting a head of lettuce or, you know, um, picking peppers or whatever, those automatically threw farmers into a facilities definition. And therefore, they were required to register annually. Fees could be involved. They were subject to inspection. And all these things went on the books in 2002. And the only reason small farmers didn't hear about it was that FDA didn't have any funding to go after that scale of farming. There were too many outbreaks in the larger industrial food system. Mm-hmm. So this was all the more reason to um, build in protections against those definitions in the Senate Bill S-510. Steve, let me take one break just to remind our listeners we are speaking with Steve Gilman. He is the policy coordinator for the Northeast Organic Farming Association and was very much involved in crafting our new food safety legislation that was just signed into law in early January. President Obama signed that legislation. Steve, let's get back to what's going to be expected from both a farmer and a consumer perspective. You mentioned funding, and in a way, the lack of funding saved the small farmers from ridiculous tight legislation or restrictions on their behaviors. What about the funding situation for the new bill, the new law? Um, That's a really good question, and I think in this new climate in Congress, funding is a major issue across the board for every legislative initiative. And the Food Safety Modernization Act that is now passed still has a long way to go, both for funding, which has to be done annually through the regular appropriations process, where it has to go head-to-head with every other program the government wants to fund. And there's been estimates that if FDA was to cover all the things that it is supposed to do under the Food Safety Modernization Act, it would cost at least $1.4 billion a year. And plainly, that money is not going to be forthcoming. Plainly, there's a lot of scrutiny that needs to happen with more frequent inspections on the large industrial food producers. There needs to be much higher geared up inspection of foreign food coming in. Right now, less than 1% of the food coming in from other areas in the world are inspected. And so I think there's going to be a breather in place for small-scale agriculture. And at the same time, after Congress passes legislation, it has to go through a lengthy rulemaking process. And this is where legislation, legislative language gets translated into um, rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. And that process will be ongoing at FDA, and it also includes public comment periods. So we have all these coalitions geared up to deal with this Food Safety Modernization Act, and there's still many opportunities ahead for farmers and organizations alike to impact and and really help define how this is going to hit the ground. So between the rulemaking process and the lack of funding, I think farmers are going to be in a much safer position than they were before. Um, Before they were subject to the Bioterrorism Act regulations and now, particularly with the tester amendment, that we managed to get included into the manager's package of the Food Safety Act, smaller-scale farmers anyway have many more protections in place. Will the tester amendment go ahead and will that go through? Does Does there need to be funding for that or additional rules and regulations, or can we just assume now that small farmers, as a result of the signing, are off the hook with regard to these more expensive kinds of rules and regulations? Yeah, I think it's important to realize, well, first of all, you're correct. The tester will go ahead. There will be some rulemaking around it on how that happens, but the basic outlines are all there. It actually doesn't really exempt. Um, this. The word exemption got used by the big produce groups and big ag uh, across the the country during the discussion of the 
in the last days of trying to pass the legislation, and they very erroneously and on purpose, I think, tried to say that this bill exempts small-scale farmers and, you know, food safety applies equally across the board. We're all responsible for producing safe food, and therefore this is a terrible travesty for the American consumer. And the fact is the Tester Amendment laid out kind of an alternative approach that was risk-appropriate for small-scale farms and scale-appropriate. And so those who qualify under that act still have to comply and demonstrate that they are complying with state and local health and ag regulations. And they, for instance, have to have their farm name prominently displayed when they're selling and have a label on the food that they do sell, and they would no longer qualify if they get into another category where their production is commingled with other farms and no longer becomes traceable. So this is really an alternative scale-appropriate, risk-appropriate approach to food safety. At the same time, one of the key Amendments that these coalitions that I worked with managed to insert into the Food Safety Modernization Act, one was an amendment by Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, who, as it turns out, is now the new chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee in this new Congress. And she put in a provision that creates funding to educate and train smaller-scale farmers um, in the rudiments of food safety. And since a lot of small-scale farmers themselves and their families are the preliminary eaters of what they grow on their farms, there's a real concerted interest in producing the safest food possible. Um, any farmer who sells contaminated product at a farmer's market is going to be out of business. Um, right. So, you know, they have every reason. These are face-to-face relationships, direct marketing relationships, and there's much more responsibility in a local food system that relies on that rather than the faceless industrial food system where things are commingled, packed, and shipped, and given a 17-day shelf life and distributed all around the country with no face at all. Steve, is that what concerns you the most about our current food system, that it is industrialized and centralized? Or are there other concerns in addition that you feel are really needing attention from consumers and eaters and farmers in terms of what really makes up the true food safety issues? Well, you know, I think you've really put your finger on it. The the industrialized food system has come in with kind of a, and just in the last 50 years, with a whole new system that says, don't worry about a thing, we'll take care of everything. And because people are having to be busier than ever just trying to make ends meet these days, and there's kind of a corporate control that's come in, and through advertising and backroom political deals, they've really managed to put themselves in the driver's seat of food policy in this country And so their power is really extensive and deep. And right now we're just dealing with a whole new issue that's come up with the U.S. Department of Agriculture is going ahead to allow Roundup-ready alfalfa, genetically engineered alfalfa, into the marketplace. And the repercussions of this would be devastating for a wide range of farmers who rely on um, alfalfa as a feed source for their livestock or even for alfalfa sprouts or alfalfa honey. And alfalfa is the fourth largest crop in the country. And Monsanto took some earlier court decisions on appeal to the Supreme Court. And in a landmark decision, the Supreme Court ruled that planting GE alfalfa is illegal until USDA really deals with the whole contamination of organic and non-GE crops. And at this point, USDA is trying to railroad this through, and 
potentially by the 24th of January, this could be um, allowed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so all of a sudden we've had to kind of let the food safety issue take a breather while they're working all that out now and jump right into this GE alfalfa issue. And I would invite any of your listeners to Google GE alfalfa and they go to the nofa.org website, that's nofa.org. We'll have some really good background material up for that and some suggested action items. Steve, I, we just have a few minutes, and I, I really think that your points are so well taken. I believe that farmers and consumers need to unite and have a united front to make the kind of food system the, just the way we want it, safe in the truest sense of the word, beyond bacteria. Bacteria is important, but so is contamination with pesticides, genetically engineered seed, pollen, and I think that you mentioned the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, NOFA, the Northern Organic Farming Association, and I think the Center for Food Safety also has been working on the GE alfalfa issue. Is that correct? Yes, and I I would just add that... um, NOFA is a member of NOC, the National Organic Coalition, who's also been doing a lot of work on this. And the NOC website has a whole lot of good materials already posted on the GE alfalfa issue, as well as some on food safety. So the Center for Food Safety is the one who has successfully filed these lawsuits that have kept GE alfalfa out of the marketplace and they are a coalition member along with NOFA and other farmer groups and environmental groups that are part of the National Organic Coalition. So they're a really good resource. I'll make sure and have links to those sites available on our KOPN website also. That's KOPN.org. Oh, that's great. Absolutely. Steve, one minute. Give us a charge. I think, you know, what we have to do is open our eyes and become aware that as consumers, I like to call us eaters because I don't, I think consumers means that it's, you're kind of a blind buyer and we have to go into all this with eyes wide open. We really have to realize that government are us, that we really have to step in and get rid of all the people that claim to be acting on our behalf all the corporate influence that's infiltrated every part of the agencies we deal with and really reclaim what is ours. And uh, I think that's the process that's really going on, and it's happening across the political spectrum. And while there's a lot of anger out there, I think what's really, really important right now is for people to take a deep breath and to maybe just take a second or third look at some of these issues that are going on and to also realize who may be behind some of those issues that are seeking to kind of jazz things up for their own ends. There's a lot of axes grinding in the background these days, and we've got to be aware of what's happening. So I am a firm believer in the whole grassroots process. Steve. Thank you. I I think your charge is terrific. Thank you for your time. Unfortunately, our time is up. We've been speaking with Steve Gilman, Policy Coordinator at the Northeast Organic Farming Association, very active in food safety legislation. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank Steve for his grassroots efforts, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Steve, thank you. Thank you very much.